Let us pray together. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that encouraged and supported by your holy word, we may embrace and always hold fast the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome again. It's great to see you uh, this Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas. Uh, we're going to take a brief moment just to reflect on some of the readings that we have gone through uh, this evening. Uh, but Christmas is one of those times, isn't it, that's a bit frantic as we get things together, as we try and uh, finish off work, uh, fulfill various duties, uh, and it can be not until the morning of Christmas Day that we begin to slow down. Um, but there's a sense in which also the year has been frantic for us, potentially. Perhaps we feel restless uh, in ourselves, not just simply by the pace of this life, but perhaps uh, for you this year, you felt restless and not at ease. I hear these words from St. Augustine, he wrote them in the 4th century AD. He writes this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Uh, we long to get to Christmas. We long to have that sense of, of rest. Uh, but we're told here at at a, a bigger level, our lives are restless and, and we will remain restless until we find our rest in God. Uh, and the good news of Christmas that we celebrate is that that which separates us from God, God meets us in. He came to the lowly, became one of us, so that the lowly could come to God. That is the good news of the incarnation, that is the good news of Christmas. And that's what we're just going to reflect on briefly uh, this evening under three headings. He came to the lowly, looking at verses 1 to 7 of our second reading. Now you'll see in this reading we were introduced firstly to someone who exercises great power, Augustus Caesar. And we're told that he sent out a message to the whole known world, the Roman world uh, back then, that a census was to be taken. Such was the extent of his power that at his will, this kind of thing could happen. In the ancient world, emperors, he being the first, were like gods. They were heralded as such, as saviours. The extent of their power was untapped. However, this just serves as a backdrop to the coming of another ruler, another king. But it does so by way of contrast where he exercises his great power, we're taken to the humble scene of the true saviour. We're told Joseph, a distant descendant of David, took his, his pregnant betrothed wife Mary, whom we're told conceived child in womb through the Holy Spirit to Bethlehem to register for this census. What's striking is the baby carried by Mary was not a, a Caesar, a man who would become a god, but a far greater wonder, the true God had become a man. 
And so they were in Bethlehem, Bethlehem being on the road to nowhere in particular. And as they arrived, we're told that there was no place for them to rest ahead. The no vacancy sign was lit. And so we're given this setting of a guest house, a room, not in a mansion, not with privilege or prestige, but we, we're given this scene of a guest inn, the place in which animals are kept, and a child is set in a manger. It's a picture of poverty, it's a picture of humility, it's a picture of, of lowliness. And into this scene, this baby Jesus is, is born. But this scene is, is, is fit for a pauper, not for a prince. It's also likely, potentially, they, the, the different commentators think that potentially word had likely passed around. Joseph was betrothed to Mary, but Mary was with child. There was scandal there, perhaps contributing to the town's no-vacancy situation. And as we read through the Gospels, as if, you, if you've ever done that, you'll see that Jesus himself is no stranger to scandal. It's not the last time he'll find himself in a scandalous situation. In fact, three decades later in his life, when Jesus is teaching on one occasion, people made comment to point out his scandalous origins. In John's Gospel, chapter 8, it says, we are not illegitimate children. These are people who are contesting and protesting Jesus. It hints that they knew something of his origins and the scandal that it was. A lowly baby on the outskirts of a town in, no, in the middle of nowhere admits scandal. And from his first breath, with only an animal's feeding trough for a bed, to his last breath, when at Easter we celebrate that he is naked and disgraced in agony on a Roman cross, the Son of God knew what it was like to be very, very poor. He came into the world lowly. The question we may have is why, and the Apostle Paul, in one of his letters, answers this for us. In 2 Corinthians, he writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. He came to the lowly so that the lowly could come to God. The Lord Jesus was poor for us, marginalised for us, excluded for us, frozen out of polite society for us, so that by his obedient, costly life and obedient, sin-bearing death, we could be made unimaginatively rich. So that's the setting. He came to the lowly. And then in verses 8 to 12, we meet some other lowly characters in this story. Luke shifts to the lowest of the common folk in this story, the shepherds. And we're told that to them, the lowest common people in the ancient world, this great news of the coming saviour was given. Again, why, why, why were the shepherds chosen for this, this noble message, this great message? Well, it was interesting for the shepherds because their task in Israel particularly, raising and protecting sheep, most sheep would have been used for sacrifices in the temple, but ironically, the work that they, they did, the sheep that they raised, that very work made them ceremonially unclean, so they were excluded from the religious life of 
Israel, excluded from the ability to commune with their God. So not only were they the lowest common people, but they were excluded from the religious life of Israel. They did no benefit from their industry. Unable to enter the temple, unable to make a sacrifice. There's something of the overtones of this, that actually to them, this child is born. To them, this new lamb of God who will be the Passover sacrifice for others to include all, that's to whom the message goes, to the lowly. But also, again, most likely, the announcements to the shepherds parallels Jesus' own circumstances. See, they too have nowhere to lay their head. Their home was as his, outside, with their sheep to watch and protect from thieves and wild animals. So the angel appeared not to the rich and powerful, not to the righteous and and to the religious, but to these lowly shepherds. And again, this will not be the last time in which the lowly are the first audience. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, who were those that came first to witness the resurrected Jesus? Well, it was in the ancient world considered that the women of that community were less respected than the males, but in the Gospels there is great dignity given to women because they are the first people to witness the risen Lord Jesus. So had his incarnation, the lowly shepherds hear the first announcement of his coming. And at the resurrection, dignified, these women get to be first witnesses of the risen Jesus. And so the shepherds appear to the angels, and and rightly, it freaks them out. I remember in my teens, I once was at a party uh, out in a rural area, and I remember looking out the window, and I was most certain I saw a figure of some kind. It was creepy. You could have seen the colour absolutely wash from my face. Now, I most certainly just had too much sugar that evening, probably. Maybe not. But I remember the sheer terror at that instant thought that something out of the ordinary was happening. And so you can imagine the sheer terror that these shepherds had at the appearance of an angel. But the angel says, don't be afraid. And then he comes and tells him the good news. In verse 10, I bring you good news that will cause great joy not only for you, but for all people. But they're the privileged few in this first announcement. It's an announcement of joy. Literally, that means good news. Good news means the gospel. And this news would cause great joy for all people. And he goes on in verse 11 to speak of this good news by giving three titles given to this one, this baby who had come. Verse 11, today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. The angel's painting a picture full of Old Testament language about the expected Messiah who would come and redeem Israel so that they could be God's people again. But this news is joy for all people, so his work would extend beyond that of Israel to all. He will be called saviour, meaning that he would save people from their sins. He would be called Christ because he would be their deliverer. He would be called Lord because he would be identified as divine. And this was to bring joy to the world. And the angels revealed this to them, to the lowly. And he gave them a sign, in verse 12, a sign 
that they will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. These shepherds would have lived most of their lives outside and looking in. But they were not outsiders to this gift. They were the recipients of it, the first recipients of it. God coming into the world and becoming like one of us so that we could come to him. I don't know how you feel about this, but you might be sitting there thinking to yourself that you are an outsider. The wonderful news here is that God chooses the lowly, the outsiders, to be recipients of spiritual blessings in his Son. But his blessings are far grander than just relief to the nation-state of Israel. They're relief to a far greater ruler than, than the, the tyranny of Rome. They're relief to uh, a tyranny far worse than any despot, a power that is at work in enslaving each of us. The Apostle John says that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That Jesus assumed a human body gives us great dignity, yet if you're anything like me, we're a, we're a cocktail of, of desires, some good, but, but many bad. I think of myself, my inability to restrain my emotions and desires, and that can wreak havoc in relationships. Well, this, to this, Jesus, our Saviour, steps into the picture, and it's good news. He is the Saviour who will overcome the great tyrant, Satan, and bring reconciliation to God. We've sung tonight, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. And the sign is to be a lowly baby in a manger. And the irony is that nothing about the sign would tell us that he is this promised king, the saviour and messiah. He came to the lowly so that the lowly could come to God. Well, finally, in verses 13 to 20, we see that the, the skies blaze forth in angelic chorus. It's not that the other angels didn't get the memo. Rather, so great were the glories revealed by this first angel that the cosmic choir breaks forth in song, declaring, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those on whom his favour rests. He's saying something about heaven and something about earth, about God on his throne in the highest heaven, but something that has happened on earth, that peace with God has happened to those on whom his favour rests. It's a promise of peace for those in whom God is pleased. I don't know if you've had relational conflict this year, but conflict, it kills us, doesn't it? And the experience of peace when there is reconciliation, there's something that is so restorative about it. Peace is, is priceless in that sense. And this was a promise for them. Peace, as Augustine says, we're, we're restless until we find our rest in thee. We're restless in the sense that the conflict in our own hearts will not be relieved until we find our rest in him. But the good news that was announced, the chorus that the angel sang was that this is now possible through this baby in a manger. 
Well, finally, we, we see that the, the shepherds go. They go to this guest room, and then they are witnesses to this baby, and then they are messengers telling others the good news. They enter what was this guest inn. But it's not the last time in the Gospel of Luke where there will be a guest inn. Right at the end of the book of Luke, in chapter 22, Jesus will send two of his disciples ahead of him to ask a man to prepare a guest room for them. There they will share a Passover meal where, where Israel celebrates the forgiveness of sins and the sacrifice for sin through the sacrifice of an animal. But on this Passover meal, we're told in John's Gospel that Jesus uses this meal to point to something else, to highlight the significance of his own work for them. He had told them numerous times that he had come to Jerusalem to die. And on that night, in that guest room, with a simple meal of, of bread and of wine, he explains to them that the bread that they eat is like his body that will be given for them. The wine that they drink will be like the blood he will shed for them so that he can accomplish this promised peace. In this guest room, within 24 hours, this symbolism of this meal will turn into reality. It's unlikely that the shepherds would have known the full significance of this as they looked at the baby in a manger. Those men who were so familiar with lambs looking upon a baby in a manger did not know that they were looking at actually the perfect Passover lamb in front of them, the lamb who would bring peace by means of his own death for us. Because that baby would grow, he would live an obedient life, and he would make the perfect lasting sacrifice to bring those who are excluded, the lowly, back into fellowship with God, the restless back to find their rest in him. Jesus was born in the most humble of circumstances. He died the most humiliating of deaths so that he could make peace between people like us and God. And that's what we celebrate tonight, that God comes close to us he becomes lowly so that the lowly can come to God. Easter explains how this is possible for people like us. Well, finally, how do we receive him? Frederick Beekner writes this, Bethlehem is not the end of our journey, but only the beginning. Not home, but the place through which we must pass if we are to ever reach home at last. So as tonight we remember the birth of Jesus... How are we to respond? Well, we are to come lowly to recognize our state before our God. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of God. Perhaps you feel lowly. Well, the good news is that God has come to meet us, the lowly, so that we can be restored with him. Perhaps you feel restless. Well, the good news is that God has come so that you can find rest in him but it requires that we humble ourselves we admit that we are lowly maybe not by the world standards but in each of the ways in which we fail to live the way that god calls us to each of the ways we rebel against him but the good news tonight is that god comes to the lowly but also we we are changed by him later in luke's gospel jesus will tell us to take up our cross and to follow him our life ought not be more comfortable than our saviours. That might mean ridicule on account of following him. 
and what he says. It might mean painful exclusion on account of living his ways. But know that Jesus took his own medicine from the first seconds of his life. And so we die to self, but the promise in dying to self is actually we find rest and life and blessing. He came to the lowly so that the lowly could come to God. Merry Christmas. Let's close together with this prayer on Advent 3, prayer on page 14. Join with me. We beseech you, Lord, pour your grace into our hearts, that as we have known the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the message of an angel, so by his cross and passion we may be brought to the glory of his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.